Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm David Ross, and welcome to episode 14 of The Sun's Israel's War on Terror podcast. All eyes are once again on Iran, after strikes by Tehran's fanatical IRGC in Syria, Iraq and even Pakistan. It comes as one of its Middle East terror proxies, the Houthis, were finally targeted by US and UK forces amid fears for Red Sea shipping and international trade. There's also fresh evidence of a Russia-style campaign of misinformation by Tehran. And this week it's been reported that the Israeli medical community is concerned that in the event sexually abused female hostages being held captive by Hamas are released or freed, some of them may be pregnant. Middle East commentator, the Israeli TV journalist and CEO of socialite creative Emily Schrader says she's shocked but sadly unsurprised by that and the world needs to get far tougher on the Iranian regime. Obviously, I'm nauseated uh, by even the idea and I think that the unfortunate reality that we're living in right now is that it actually isn't that surprising. Knowing how Hamas behaved on October 7th, uh, as well as those who joined in with them as part of this massacre, um, knowing what eyewitnesses who survived the Nova massacre, as well as the attacks in many of the smaller communities, the kibbutzim, um, it's not surprising. Um, we know that sexual violence as a method of warfare is a tactic that they used and that they used as a strategy in order to terrorize uh, the Israeli public. So I think it's um, not surprising at all uh, that this is a, a very, very uh, unfortunate reality for the the young women who are still, even after 100 days, captives of of the terror organization Hamas uh, as well. We've heard from uh, from several of the hostages who were released. We heard from them as well that the uh, situation in captivity has not really been much better. Uh, while there haven't been hostages who are willing to speak publicly about rape, uh, there have been some who testified that they saw others undergoing uh, sexual assault repeatedly, that in some cases the girls, who are some of whom are still held captive, uh, that they know they were sexually assaulted multiple times and that, in fact, it was used uh, as a tool of punishment for the captives. So uh, the hostage who was released testified that when the girls would cry, then they would assault them again until they stopped crying. Um, there were also testimonies of sexual assault occurring in front of children who were in locked inside cages with some of the women. Uh, really, really um, un unpleasant uh, descriptions to even listen to. And obviously, it's it's physically sickening uh, to to realize the gravity and the depravity of this terrorist organization. And, and I do have to add that 
Again, unfortunately, it's not surprising when we look at the situation globally right now because Hamas is a direct arm of the Islamic Republic of Iran. It is an official proxy of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And this is a tactic that that regime has used for 44 years in order to silence dissent, in order to eliminate opposition, in order to shut down the spirit of the people of Iran. And it's something that they've been doing as recently as, you know, a few weeks ago. There was a report that was issued by Amnesty International about sexual violence as a method of war to shut down the women life freedom movement. It's what they have done in prison to both men and women, uh, to many of the protesters who rose up against this regime. So this is a tactic that's that's known. It's a strategy. And it's something that the entire world, regardless of their personal feelings about Israel or Israeli policy or even this war, this is something that should surpass all political boundaries. And unfortunately, I don't think we've seen that as, as strongly as we should. But that is the reality. It's something that should surpass political boundaries, as you've said, and as you, you just alluded to, there has been a disappointing reaction by aid groups and UN-associated organizations to Israeli women being sexually abused. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think the response from UN women was abysmal. Even after they put out a statement, it was kind of like, well, both sides are affected by war, but we're not talking about the war. We're not talking about both sides. We're talking about a terrorist organization designated by Europe and the U.S. as a terrorist organization using sexual violence against both men and women and, by the way, underage girls, children, uh, in order to terrorize the public. This is this is not this is not about politics. It's not about land. It's not about religion. It's not even about a historical dispute. It's something that far surpasses that. And, and any organization or individual who is unable to see that is dealing with their own biases that, frankly, I would argue in many cases, if not all, are rooted in anti-Semitism. Because I can't see any other reason why someone would treat the case of sexual assault against Jewish women so much differently than sexual assault against any other group of individuals. You touched on some Iranian tactics earlier, and there's been some publication today of a new tactic, or at least a new information about a about a tactic of disinformation and trying to trick people into revealing information that will help the, the Tehran cause. Just tell us a little bit exactly about what's been uncovered. The Iranian regime, the Islamic Republic regime, has been using uh, social media primarily, but other internet sites, uh, in order to fish for information from Israeli citizens. They have also set up multiple social media accounts in order to spread disinformation um, from things as as innocuous as uh, political debates within Israel uh, to attacking or criticizing the families of current hostages who are being held by Hamas, uh, as well as a number of different forms that they've set up, some of them in- intended to look like Israeli news websites, and they had like a prompt to have you submit your information for volunteering and all kinds of things to obtain information about where people live, what they're doing, what their interests are, how they interact on social media. A- and a target of this, of course, was trying to identify addresses, locations, personal data information from security personnel as well in the state of Israel. Um, So I do think it's very, very important that people are wary about the information they're seeing. 
Um, one of the accounts, for example, was called like bring bring home bring home now or bring them home now, very similar to the actual official campaign to release the hostages. So they're sort of preying on this vulnerable time in Israel um, in order to sow division and disinformation about the hostages, about the government in Israel, about the entire situation. And unfortunately, you mentioned that it's that it was just revealed today. Uh, but this is only one element. This is an issue that's been going on for a very long time on social media. Of course, we know uh, about Russia's involvement, election interference. Turkey has done this on certain political issues. And of course, China. Uh, but Iran also, the Islamic Republic is known for disinformation, for cyber activity, especially on social media. And I myself have been a target of the Iranian regime's uh, attempted uh, sabotage on social media. I've been reached out to for interviews with reporters who didn't exist, trying to get me to log into like uh, my Gmail account in order to record on on uh, Google Meet, where I've never had a reporter record on Google Meet. Uh, I've had invitations to speak at conferences that didn't exist from professors who are not real professors at the university, despite the fact that the email address is legitimate um, and that I received an email from this address. So they're very creative uh, in the ways that they're trying to identify uh, Israelis, uh, get information from them, and in some cases even lure them uh, to Europe for kidnapping or worse, which is actually what happened to me when I received an invitation to speak at a conference. So this is a known tactic of the regime. They've been targeting prominent Israelis for, for many years, um, trying to, I guess, uh, I, I assume, get hostages in order for, you know, to apply pressure to the state of Israel and the West as a whole. Um, but this is a very concerning, concerning trend. And I think people need to educate themselves a little bit about how this how this works and how social media can be manipulated in order to present uh, a false picture of reality. And I will give you one example that I think is really important to this conflict right now. When it comes to surveys and polling, um, by all the methods that we know we're supposed to use for for polling, um, the evidence indicates that the majority of Europeans, uh, generalizing, of course, but the majority of Europeans and the majority of Americans, by a pretty significant margin, generally support Israel in the fight against Hamas. However, if you look at social media or even polls that are conducted on social media, you would have a very different impression. And that's because there is a lot of information on social media that is not verified, that is not checked, that is elevated falsely, especially in the uh, instance of TikTok. They are known for silencing certain political opinions in certain geographic regions and elevating falsely others so that it's displayed more to users, so it has more views. So you're given a false perception that the majority of the world thinks X, when the reality is the majority of the world thinks Y. And another example, what we're seeing right now happening before our eyes is that there is, seems to be a great deal of opposition to the U.S.-led airstrikes on the Houthis, including from the U.K. There was a large manifestation from the whole Free Palestine movement. Um, there have been some protests in other places as well, criticizing the, the uh, U.S. and allies for, for attacking the Houthis, which, of course, are a terrorist organization who even a few hours ago fired at a U.S. ship and hit it in the Red Sea. So this is someone who has engaged in repeated attacks against U.S. citizens, against U.S. troops abroad, and would do more if they had the ability. And yet you get this impression online that somehow there's this heroic group who is 
fighting for some kind of liberation. There were chants of, uh, you know, I think it was in Canada, they were chanting for Yemen. These people were completely silent when Yemen had a bloody, barbaric civil war with hundreds of thousands of people killed, when there was a famine so bad that Yemenites were starving to death. And now they're in the streets protesting in favor of the Houthis? I don't buy it. Well, of course, there is some ignorance when it comes to, you know, opposition to Western strikes on the Houthis. I also don't buy that there's a huge faction of people who really feel that way. But if you look at social media today, you would think that this is a very fiercely debated issue. I don't believe that it is. I think there's a small but loud minority who's presenting a false perception of what is actually happening in the world around us. How encouraged are you by the US and UK response to those Houthi attacks in the Red Sea? I am relieved. I think it's too late. I think they should have done it a long time ago. Uh, but I do, you know, I'm, I am I applaud them for, for finally taking action. Uh, and I encourage them to continue until the Houthis are no longer a threat, which which could be a significant amount of time. And the reason for that isn't because I support, you know, war and bombing. Obviously, I want to avoid that as much as possible. But the unfortunate reality is that if we don't do something now, it will be worse later. It will be worse with Hezbollah. It will be worse with the Houthis. It will be worse with Hamas. It will be worse with Islamic Jihad. It will be worse with the IRGC. And if we don't deal with these proxies and send a zero tolerance message, we being the entire Western world, not just the United States or Israel or anyone else, um, if we don't send a clear message that we won't back down in the face of of threats and of terrorism and of the export of terrorism that we've seen from the Islamic Republic, then they, they are going to get worse. Because the only way to deal with a, a terrorist regime like what you have in Tehran is with zero tolerance. Now, I don't think that the only way to deal with this regime is through war. I'm hopeful that we can avoid that. But in order to avoid it, we need to have a much stronger policy towards this regime in order to essentially force it to fall internally. That would be the the ideal situation. We are a long ways off from that right now, but I do think that it's possible given the right set of conditions and the right alliances when the uh, European Union and other European nations are able to unite with the United States, with Canada, Australia, and other democratic nations to have absolutely zero tolerance, full enforcement of sanctions, additional sanctions if necessary, as well as potentially revoking recognition of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which there is a legitimate legal case for de-recognition. If you look at how the regime came to power and their sort of falsified support for a constitutional referendum, there hasn't really been that with the Islamic Republic. So even going back in time, there's a case to be made for that. And I say that because a lot of elected officials have said, well, there's there's nothing we can do. We, we can't do any more without going to war. And that is false. There's a lot that can be done at the government level, at the intergovernment level with different international organizations that has not been done and that is not being done. And so I'm hopeful that we have better leadership that is willing to to call a spade a spade and to deal with this issue uh, at the, the head of the octopus, not just uh, the Houthis or Hamas or individual organizations. That being said, it is a start, so I'm, I am glad to see that, that they're taking action. In terms of the military action on the ground in Gaza right now, where do you see the second phase developing in, in the next few months? Hagari has kind of said there's going to be fewer troops 
involved from this point on, more targeted uh, strikes, it appears to be the way that the IDF is thinking. How do you see events playing out? I'm not a, I'm not privy to the military strategy of the IDF uh, as it stands today. However, we do know that we essentially have control over northern Gaza uh, and that we are working on the the southern border that borders Egypt in order to control what and who is going in and out, um, which is critically important if we're actually going to eliminate the ability of Hamas to operate uh, inside of the Gaza Strip, as well as uh, catching people like Yahya Sinwar, who were responsible for organizing the October 7th attacks that have thus far evaded um, the IDF. So I, I do I, I do know that they are scaling back a little bit. Um, part of that is also because uh, it's winter and also because we have had many reservists who have been on duty for for three months. So I know that they're moving into a less intense, uh, less intensity fighting in the Gaza Strip. However, they're far from done. Uh, and I also know that the government and the IDF have both confirmed repeatedly uh, that this operation will continue until they feel that they have eliminated Hamas or at least eliminated enough power of Hamas uh, in order to remove them from power in the Gaza Strip. Now, in the long term, it remains to be seen. There has been several proposals on the table for what Gaza will look like at the end of the day. Both the president and prime minister have stated explicitly and repeatedly that there is zero intention or plan to build settlements or move any sort of Israeli population into Gaza. Um, in fact, many of them, many of the Palestinians in Gaza, the idea is that we can help them rebuild and they can return to their homes. However, as it stands right now with the fighting in the south, uh, we are having a bit of an issue because many of the Palestinians already want to return to northern Gaza, which is essentially in Israel's control, as I mentioned. But we don't know who they are. We don't know uh, what they're involved with, what associations they are. We know that Hamas, unfortunately, as, as a tactic, embeds with civilian populations. They don't differentiate in what they wear. They intentionally use crowds of civilians in order to carry out terrorist activities. So it's a very, very difficult landscape to conduct a war. Uh, but I know that, you know, the the army is committed to doing all they can in order to to restore a sense of security on the ground here in Israel. And I, I think that that is their their obligation as as unfortunate and challenging as this as this war is for both sides. It is challenging, of course, and that was was witnessed today in in Renana with a with a terror attack there. There's serious incidents happening in the West Bank. How much of a challenge do you think general security is right now? In that, so much focus is on Gaza. You know, I think that Israel since October seventh has really been on high alert on all sides. So I actually don't think that the secu immediate security threat is as severe as perhaps it was on October 6th, and not just from Gaza. Uh, we know, we believe that the northern border would have been significantly worse had so many reservists not been called up, had they not been on the front lines defending those communities and also evacuating the communities on the immediate border, which haven't been home in three months. And until today, they are still not. Uh, in their homes on the northern border. And that is a preventative measure in order to ensure that there isn't a type of massacre like we saw on October 7th, because we do know that Hezbollah has created many tunnels on the northern border. Uh, and I think that the army is very focused uh, not on escalating the conflict, but on ensuring that there is no further escalation upon us uh, as Israelis across the border. 
uh, at least for the time being, um, when it comes to dealing with Hezbollah or with other terrorist organizations, whether it's Hezbollah in Syria or other groups, IRGC uh, in Syria, where we have seen, you know, some shelling and rocket fire from from both states, from Syria, the Syrian side and also the Lebanese side against Israeli civilians. The West Bank obviously is a somewhat of a powder keg. Um, there are always a lot of tensions because there are a lot of competing both terrorist organizations and political groups in the West Bank. Uh, before this operation, Israel had a major counterterror operation in Jenin, for example, with Islamic Jihad, another proxy of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, but uh, yes, the, the army is very active um, in the West Bank right now as well. And I think that they're doing all they can in order to to push back and ensure that things don't escalate out of control at the way, you know, at the level which they did on October 7th. That being said, of course, we're dealing with a lot of uh, a lot of thwarted attacks and, and unfortunately a lot of attacks such as what we saw in Renana today with the uh, car ramming and, and stabbing. And probably there will be many more attempts in the coming uh, days and, and weeks and months. Um, but I'm confident in Israel's ability to uh, to shut this down and to to restore a sense of calm eventually. But for now, difficult days and probably more difficult. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Days ahead. The rest of the world, is it starting to, to catch up? on tackling terror some news in the uk about the uh group uh, hisbut tahrir appears to be some action there are you getting a sense that israel's allies are are looking at, at terror groups in a slightly different way i do think that the response from the uk france and the united states has been stronger against terrorism than i would have expected um, not necessarily specific to Israel, but to terrorism. I do think that at the highest levels of government in most, I would say most democratic countries, except perhaps South Africa, <laughs> um, they are starting to understand the threat as it pertains to them. I think the biggest challenge that we have right now is actually on the disinformation front, because the masses of people who don't have access to perhaps classified information or reports about who is being targeted, why they're being targeted, what these terrorist organizations are focused on and what their agenda is, that message isn't as much getting through, uh, especially when it comes to the United States. There are not a lot of people who understand that despite the fact Americans don't really care about Iran, 
Iran, at least the the regime, really cares about America and in a negative way. And they don't really see that they're in the crosshairs or that American citizens are potentially in danger, even in even in Europe, you know, touring around or that that Europeans are in danger from the Islamic Republic. And that is a problem. That is a PR problem, because when the public doesn't understand, then if you have to act, they don't, God forbid, <laughs> they don't have the support because they don't understand why they're potentially risking their lives or potentially risking lives of soldiers as well. And that is a very important aspect when it comes to combating terrorism. I think that there's a lack of education about what these organizations are, what they seek to do, and just how evil they really are. Uh, it's difficult to comprehend growing up in a, a, a privileged liberal society it's difficult to comprehend how perverse the and evil these organizations really are because you wouldn't even think that anyone would want that, that anyone would find the types of things that the Islamic Republic or Hamas does. Why, why would someone do that? I mean, it's, it's almost inconceivable. Some of the scenes that were described from the um, survivors in the, the Nova Music Festival, forever, why would someone do the things that they did? It, it's so perverse and and twisted and evil and, and and the torture and the oppression that that innocent civilians are, are going through at the hands of some of these organizations it's just beyond comprehension and that's for someone like me who knows these issues inside and out who follows this who reports on this who speaks to survivors uh, in both countries by the way in Israel as well as in Iran uh, and still it's difficult to comprehend and so I can't even imagine how difficult it must be for you know, someone sitting in, in London who has no affiliation really to the Middle East, they, they don't really understand what they're up against. And uh, we've already had a situation recently in Denmark where a Hamas affiliated cell was believed to be plotting some kind of attack and, and arrests were made. So this is already on Europe's door. Absolutely. I mean, I think that unfortunately, um, more so Iran even than, than Hamas, but Hamas too. I, I guess this is a great example of what I was talking about. Iran has used Europe for many years for money laundering, for IRGC activities, and they have carried out assassinations and kidnappings and attacks against European citizens, including dual uh, Iranian and, and European nationals, um, on European soil. They have attempted to do so in the United States as well. They attempted to kidnap uh, Masih Alinejad, for example. Um, this is behavior that should never be tolerated. There needs to be an extremely strong reaction from any nation whose sovereignty is violated by the Islamic Republic in this way. And there wasn't really. There wasn't really in the Netherlands. There wasn't really in France when they did it. There hasn't really been against the fatwas that have been issued, um, the threats against Iran International in London, for example. It's not enough for the Islamic Republic to understand that there will be consequences, not war necessarily, but, but consequences for this kind of rogue state behavior. And, and the result of that is what we see now, that the regime learned that they can get away with this kind of thing as long as it's small enough. And so the result is now we see more organizations doing this. We see Hamas trying to carry out terrorist attacks on European soil. And if that is not dealt with sternly as a deterrent, there will be more, whether from Iran or from Hamas or from other terrorist organizations. Hezbollah also has used European soil to carry out terror attacks in Bulgaria. So it, it, it matters. In fact, it matters less who the actual target is in these countries. The fact is that 
the terrorist organizations do they don't fear the consequences of carrying out acts of terror against Europeans, against the West in general. And that is a problem. That is very much a problem. And, and we're not going to be able to deter it effectively unless we demonstrate that. And we come from a place of strength because, unfortunately, that's how the conversation works throughout the Middle East. In terms of what does scare Iran, really, it's kind of you have to look back to Soleimani and 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 that kind of targeted attack. Is there an economic sanction, a, a strategy that really would make Tehran and the IRGC think, no, we're going to hold? I think if you had a a democratic alliance, we'll call it, of, of many nations, both Europe and Australia, New Zealand, all these countries, not buying the lies of the Islamic Republic when it comes to their nuclear program, when we start to see that there are consequences for any states who are actually working with Iran, like China, who has been buying their oil even when there are sanctions, or like Russia, when when the regime feels the harsh economic consequences of full enforcement of sanctions, even the existing ones, I think you will see a change. And most importantly, I think, and I think this is critical, the people will be encouraged. Because despite the fact that sanctions are are brutal for the people of Iran, and, and they do feel a negative consequences as a result of it, they're not seeing money, they're not seeing a, a thriving economy, even when there aren't sanctions, because the regime are thieves. And they've been taking the money from the people of Iran and sending it to terrorist proxies in Gaza or wherever else, which is why you see Iranians on the street chanting, uh, no to Lebanon, no to Gaza, I give my life for Iran. Uh, they know what's happening. They know what their regime is doing. And that's why you see tens of thousands of Iranians practically begging the Western world to do something. And the way you do something is by holding the regime accountable. Um, for their currency manipulation, for their export of terrorism, for their violations for uh, nuclear proliferation. All of these things, nobody's held them accountable for, despite lots of talk and very, very little action. And that's just not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it with a regime like this. And when we see a tougher policy on Iran, you're going to see a more encouraged uh, society within Iran, who, whom I believe are the true people who can really overthrow this regime. Uh, because when they feel that they have the support of the West, that's when you're going to start to see a lot of change. One of the biggest demotivators in the last wave of protests was that they didn't feel anyone had their back. And the regime came down like a ton of bricks on them, which is why most of the protest leaders are now sitting in prison or have already been executed. And and by the way, the Gaza war, what's happening right now, is something that the regime itself has used as an excuse to crack down on some of the protesters who have been sitting in prison. They are, are outpacing executions for 2024 already. It's only January 15th. Uh, you know, I think it's the highest number at this point in the year in like the last 10 or 15 years because no one's paying attention to them. No one's holding them accountable. No one seems to care if they're mass executing political prisoners uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And they are. And they're getting away with it. And that's a really, really uh, unpleasant reality. Uh, but we also have a role to play in this situation in, in holding them accountable. And I think that when that starts to happen, you're going to start to see action from within Iran as well. And perhaps one of the most important factors that can actually, that actually has the potential to bring down the regime is strikes, is labor strikes in the uh, steel industry, of course, in the petrochemical industry, 
in the uh, everything related to to oil production in Iran. They really don't like when those industries strike and they do strike periodically, but then they'll arrest all of them or they'll threaten all of their families uh, or in some cases they'll pay them unpaid wages in order to shut them up for a bit until the next wave of protests. So the regime does a lot to um, to quell protests. They're like constantly putting out fires. But if the people, the majority of whom do not support the regime, if the people feel empowered, it's going to be very hard for that regime to to crack down in all places at once, where we know that millions of people, tens of millions of people in Iran want regime change. And it seems then, and I, I don't know if this is the right word, but disappointing that there's not quite the sense that the population of Gaza feels about Hamas as the people of Iran feel about the Tehran regime. How do you address that in terms of a de-radicalization effort? We're talking now in a week where we've passed the 100-day mark and baby Kafir Bibas has a one-year birthday inside a tunnel. Really, the population of Gaza needs to help the IDF in this effort to locate hostages. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're dealing with, first of all, we're dealing with a very different culture, uh, which is something also many people in the West don't understand when it comes to the Middle East. Iranians are not Arabs. They do not speak Arabic. They aren't even, you know, historically speaking, it wasn't really a Muslim country. It was Zoroastrian and many other faiths before that. And Islam came sort of as a colonial force um, in Iran, and many of them resent that. So there already is some internal tension, a very, very different culture, although many people think it's the same. Now, in Gaza, you have a different situation. They're Sunni Muslim, um, and and despite being technically religious rivals of Shia Islam, which is what Iran is, um, the Hamas is a, a proxy of the Islamic Republic, and the majority, according to recent polls, both in the West Bank and in Gaza, the majority of Palestinians do support Hamas. For whatever reason, they do support Hamas. Part of this is a byproduct of years, decades of incitement, um, the way that they are taught, the narrative that they're told, what is glorified in their society, what they believe is good and evil from infancy, to, from cradle to grave, really, um, is extremely anti-Semitic, extremely uh, it, it, the the idea of Israel existing side by side, you know, in, in any borders is unconscionable to most Palestinians in Gaza. It's not something that they're ready to accept. And I think many people don't realize the level of, I don't know if you want to call it brainwashing, but indoctrination that Palestinians have been raised in, especially in Gaza. That being said, I think it's actually even worse for the minority that do oppose Hamas, that truly want to live in peace. And, and I, I know some of them in Gaza, and, and I wish there was something I could do in order to help them or to get them out, at least temporarily. Um, you know, me in my capacity as a private citizen, I don't really have that ability. But it's, it's, it's in a way worse for them, because at least in the situation in Iran, the majority of people around you oppose the regime. <laughs> Uh, in in Gaza, not so much. So who do you trust? Who can you talk to? Who can you build alliances with? Who can you build political power with? Who can you plan anything with? Because Hamas controls everything with an iron fist, or at least until now they have. And so 
that's why you're starting to see, even with Israel's actions in Gaza, you're starting to see, you know, more and more videos popping up on, on Arabic social media of Palestinians in Gaza condemning Hamas, asking Israel for help, listening to Israel's instruction, asking them for, for assistance. Uh, and these are things that are being put out, including by them, by the way. This isn't stuff like recorded by Israel and uploaded and as propaganda. No, this is coming from Arabic social media. They're fed up. I think there's a lot of people who are fed up and they see the consequences of a, a terrorist regime running their government. They haven't really had the ability to, you know, rise up and, and overthrow Hamas. And, and even if they could, they wouldn't because the majority of them support Hamas. Um, I don't know that the majority of them support it because of the terrorism. It might be for other reasons or whatever. Um, but the fact that you can look at what happened on October 7th and celebrate it or be happy or even just not think it's that bad is a reflection of the problems in society that exist within the Gaza Strip. And I know there are a lot of people who said, oh, but occupation or oh, but they have it so hard. Yes. But let's not forget that they did vote for Hamas. The last time they had elections, they did vote for Hamas. Uh, the majority of them do support Hamas today. And so we have to operate with that reality. Now, that being said, I don't condone killing a civilian who says he supports Hamas just because he supports Hamas. There's a big difference between what someone thinks and what someone does. If someone is a member of Hamas and they are active with Hamas, then they are a legitimate military target. Now, if they're a civilian who happens to have sympathy towards them, that's distasteful. And I think that they should undergo some sort of, you know, re-education, I guess, on this issue because terrorism is objectively bad. But I wouldn't say that they're a legitimate military target. So, of course, there are civilian casualties on the ground. Um, and, and I do hold Hamas responsible for this because of the fact that they have embedded their entire a strategy, their entire military operation in civilian areas. I mean, a core principle of how they set up what they do in Gaza is in, in, in creating tunnels under hospitals. Hospitals. And by the way, a lot of people talk about, oh, Israel is committing war crimes because they bombed a hospital or they bombed a mosque or they bombed a school. And, and the reality of this, when you actually look into the international law, is that when a terrorist organization or a legitimate military, which of course is a war crime, but when they are using civilian sites like hospitals, those sites are no longer under international law considered civilian sites. Whether or not you can attack those sites has to be evaluated through the lens of proportionality or through the question of proportionality. And that means how valuable is the target that's there? So if it was Yahya Sinwar or some random low-ranking Hamas member and only one of them, would that be worthwhile for the IDF to, say, hypothetically uh, carry out an airstrike on that area um, when there are 10 civilians present? Now, it may be that for Yahya Sinwar, it's worth it in terms of, you know, a legal airstrike during a declared state of war, even though it's a hospital. Why? Because Yahya Sinwar is a very high-value target. And so the benefit for Israel strategically in the war would outweigh the cost. As, as terrible as that is, it is a reality of war. And it's something that all nations who have dealt with war, especially urban warfare, have to deal with. Uh, that is a question that's asked in every strike in the IDF. And I also want to add that the lawyers who make these decisions do not report to the chain of command in the IDF, meaning that if they declare that something would be illegal, or that it's not proportional because the risk to civilians is too great, 
um, they don't they don't have anyone to answer to. They're evaluating this independently because that's a very important thing. And in addition to that, something that people aren't aware of is that if they are wrong and if they approve a strike and say that it's legal and in fact there are 100 civilians instead of 10, they are legally liable. They can be tried for war crimes as themselves, as, you know, me, Emily Schrader, not as the state of Israel, for their decision on those strikes. So these things are not taken lightly, which is why incidents like what happened with the the International Court of Justice in South Africa's claim that Israel's committing genocide are just so preposterous. Because on the one hand, you have whether whether Israel's right or wrong, it doesn't even matter. It's just a ridiculous claim to make because you on the one hand, you have a terrorist organization whose charter itself is genocidal, whose leaders have stated post October 7th that they would do this exact same thing again and again. And then you have a a legitimate army that's a state actor that is doing everything they can in order to avoid or to minimize civilian casualties as much as possible while also trying to eliminate the threat to their civilians from that genocidal organization. So it's just very, very twisted and politicized. And I think that that's to the detriment of really everyone involved because the first demand on October 8th, the first demand from the global community should have been no, Hamas, you're a terrorist organization and you need to release every single hostage immediately and then we can talk about what to do. This entire operation, at least at this level, could have been avoided if Hamas immediately was forced, whether because of public pressure or whatever other reason, was forced to release all of the hostages immediately. But that's not what they did. And instead of demanding that, the world turned on Israel and said, oh, well, this and that political issue and occupation and that we don't like that and whatever. All kinds of excuse making about political issues that shouldn't relate to the release of hostages. People should not be we should not be accepting as human beings that states or terrorist organizations are kidnapping civilians or citizens of a certain country for a strategic political action. That should not be acceptable the same way that Sexual violence as a method of war should not be acceptable. And I think uh, more people are are on that bandwagon and understand that this is something that should never happen from any organization. The same thing should be said of taking hostages. And yet this is a core element of the strategy. Again, the strategy of the Islamic Republic of Iran from day one. And we see that through all their proxies as well. Middle East commentator Emily Schrader there. Well, that brings an end to this week's installment of Israel's War on Terror. You can search for more episodes wherever you typically get your podcasts. Please let us know in the comments if you've any related stories you'd like us to tackle, and we'll do our best to examine them in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.